If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Acts 27, but fair warning, we're not going to be there long. This morning, we're going to be bouncing with a lot of the ladies away at the women's retreat this morning. We're going to not move forward in our Life of Paul series. In fact, we're going to creep just a little bit backwards. We were in Acts 28 last week. We'll be in Acts 27 this morning. And from there, we're going on a bit of a tangent. Next week, we'll finish Acts 28. And from there, begin the prison epistles, starting with Ephesians, which, man, that's going to be a delight. But before my wife headed out to the women's retreat, actually on her way to the women's retreat, she texted me, hey, just a heads up if you're not doing anything, the Mormon missionaries are in our neighborhood. And, and I, I say that knowing that the term Mormon has become problematic. Many prefer Latter-day Saints um, because the term Mormon is associated with polygamy, which much of the Mormon faith now renounces. So the, 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 the smiling young men with the name badges and the short sleeve shirts. And I get excited when they come around because most of the time, they are bright and enthusiastic young people who want to talk about Jesus at least Jesus as they understand him. And so it's an opportunity to do that Aikido thing, to take their energy and redirect it into a conversation about Jesus the way the Bible reveals him. So I'm driving home, and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, trying, to, trying to remember key verses that are useful in, in talking with LDS missionaries. An easy one to remember is John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, our LDS friends will agree that's talking about Jesus. So here's a chance to use the Columbo technique. There's just one thing I don't understand. If Jesus is the creator of all things, then Jesus created Lucifer... So how is it that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers? And then wait. The LDS Church also teaches that men of their faith, certain men of their faith at least, become gods in the afterlife, each with their own planet or universe, depending upon... But if that's true, if any version of that is true, then what does the God of the Bible mean in Isaiah 43.10? When he says, before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. And then smile. And see what they do with the silence. There's, if you want a whole menu of good questions, of good conversation topics like that, go to our friend Charlie Campbell's website, alwaysbeready.com. He's got a whole menu. And I've never had an LDS missionary fall to their knees and repent in a conversation with me. But, but I've been privileged to stir up enough dissonance. I've seen some of them start to come to church. So, so, and, and, and that's the goal, is, is, is to let young men, and I guess some young women, who are utterly certain of what they believe, be a little less certain when they walk away. My all-time favorite question, though, if, 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 if they roll up on you and you're caught completely flat-footed, you're in the parking lot at Dillon's, you're in the drive through at McDonald's, and, and, and you get jumped and you can't think of a single Bible verse, here's one you can remember. Just ask your new LDS friends politely, because, because they're painstakingly polite. We have to be polite. 
Look at your new LDS friends and ask them, where are your maps? The Book of Mormon talks about all kinds of people doing all kinds of things in all kinds of places, none of which can be independently validated. My Bible's full of maps. I got, I got, where are they? They're there. I, I got the, the nations of Genesis 10, and I've got the Exodus, and I've got the conquest of Canaan, and I've got where the ten tribes settled, and I've got a map of Jerusalem, and I've got Palestine and Christ's time, and all of Paul's journeys, and, and I, I mean, I got Old Testament maps, I got maps falling out. Um, but if you open up the Book of Mormon, there's not one single map that's ever been validated ever by a non-LDS scholar. And so the question that you want to ask, can you help me understand why that is? Don't tell them what it means, ask them what it means, and then politely wait. People ask me sometimes, Patrick, why do you make a big deal out of maps on Sunday morning? Is it just so you have an excuse to play with your bright green laser pointer? which we switched to this because what we were hearing from people who worship at home via the stream is they couldn't see the tiny red dot. They can see this. <laughs> and the reason that, that we use maps and point at maps, maps are one of the ways that we know we can trust our Bible because maps point us to places. And when we go to that place, and when we dig in that place, we find things. We find artifacts. We find coins. We find statues. We find altars. We find all kinds of evidence that the things that the Bible tells us happened in those places actually happened to real people in real places in real times. Which is why I want to go back to Acts 27 this morning and look at a map couple maps, actually, but, but the first one is the one that's up there, and we've looked at it the last several weeks as we followed Paul's journey from, uh, in Acts 26 into Acts 27, from Caesarea, where he was under house arrest for two years, through Crete, and down into a storm, eventually being shipwrecked in Malta. Tradition says that Paul and his uh, shipmates came to shore in Malta. Next slide right here in St. Paul's Bay. And it's named St. Paul's Bay because St. Paul. But the, the fact that it is reminds us, Paul had an impact on the island of Malta. We, we don't fully get from Acts 27. Even today, the island is 98% Catholic, and Catholic tradition holds that Publius, Publius, the chief man of the island whose father was cured of a fever, converted to Christianity and became the first bishop of Malta. That's Catholic tradition, and it's also Catholic tradition that tells us that St. Paul's Bay is where Paul, St. Paul in their vernacular, Paul and his shipmates came ashore. And for centuries, nobody questioned that. But a few years ago, a group of explorers from BASE, Biblical Archaeology Search and Exploration, it's Bob Cornick's group, if you know that name, started wondering, how true is that really, this St. Paul's Bay hypothesis? Bob Cornick is a, was a crime scene investigator in Los Angeles, and more recently, for the last couple decades, he's applied that same skill set to investigating places and events in Scripture. And when he looked at Acts 27 and 28, he noticed something. He noticed that there were some place clues having to do with where they dropped anchor before they wrecked. Four clues, 
they dropped anchor at a depth of 15 fathoms, about 90 feet, in a place they didn't recognize, but a place that was a bay with a beach. So it wasn't just a cliff face. It was a, it was a gentle slope. It came to a beach. And it, where, where, they, where they got hung up was a reef or a sandbar where two seas met. And they said, okay, those four clues don't seem to fit with St. Paul's Bay. Consulting with a meteorologist who is an expert on storms and weather patterns in the region, they, they gained what seemed to be some confirmation that maybe St. Paul's Bay wasn't as good a fit as, as historians thought. The, the storm expert pointed out what we talked about, this Bay of Sirtis here was a known graveyard for ships. And they were trying, we, we read in Acts 27, they were trying to avoid that at all costs, which would have meant they would be trying to navigate due north. But with the prevailing winds coming from the west, the, most, the best that they would have done is maybe, maybe north-northwest. As a result, they would have most likely ended up on the southeast side of the island. And that fits with verse 39, and it fits with chapter 28, verse 1, which says the sailors didn't know where they were. St. Paul's Bay was well known to people navigating the region. It was recognizable. So Cornock's theory was that they actually ended up here on the southeast corner of the island in what's called St. Thomas Bay. But here's where things get fun. When they started investigating that area, they met a diver named Ray Ciancio, who said, yeah, you know, in the early 60s, I dug up four anchors. And I dug them up at a depth of about 90 feet, right off of a dangerous sandbar called the Muxnar Reef, a place where two seas come together. He only kept one because he didn't know what he had or what he potentially had because the tradition of St. Paul's Bay was so firmly rooted in, in the collective consciousness of the, of the island. Now, can we prove, you can go see the, the one anchor that he kept, can we prove that that came from the ship carrying Paul? We can't. But Cornick's theory reminds us of a principle. When we use maps, and when we go where the Bible says to go, we expect to find things. And we do find things. We find artifacts that remind us we're not reading fables. We're not reading mythology. We're not reading stories. We're reading history. Things that happened. For the past couple of years, we've been following the journeys of Paul from place to place, journey after journey. Are the places that he describes real? Do the people that he talks about, did they actually exist? Absolutely. How do we know? One of the ways we know is archaeology. And I've called out a number of archaeological uh, evidences along the way, but for everyone that I've called out as we've studied through, there's probably five, ten more that I didn't. So, so let's take a look at some of the archaeological evidence we have for the book of Acts that we've been studying. One example, Gamaliel. Before Paul was a Christian, when he gives us his testimony, Acts 22 and elsewhere, he tells us he was a student of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel's a well-known guy, at least from literature. Allegedly was a grandson of Hillel. Historians are convinced, but can archaeologists prove that he really lived? The answer is yes. There's a 
tomb that was found in catacombs in Beth Shurim near the Sea of Galilee. And, and on a tomb, written in Hebrew and Greek both, are the words, this tomb is of the rabbi Gamaliel. So after, that's Acts 9, after studying with Gamaliel, Paul, of course, becomes a Pharisee and then a persecutor of the church until he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, when we read about that encounter, we also read that Jesus talked to somebody else that same day. He talked to Ananias and said, hey, I just wrecked this guy Saul of Tarsus. You should go talk to him. And he tells Ananias, Acts 9, verse 11, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, the name Paul was going by in those days. Did such a street ever exist? This one doesn't even require digging. Archaeology becomes necessary when, when towns are leveled and, and when civilizations are wiped out and so forth. But Damascus, remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Damascus as the oldest continually inhabited city in the world? Because of that, you can walk into Damascus and find the street called Straight today. It's one of the main east-west arteries running through the city. And will be until Acts 17, 11, uh, Acts 17 verse 1 rather happens. So, the Jew, so, so Paul becomes a Christian. He meets Ananias, scales fall from his eyes. He, becomes preaching, he begins preaching the gospel. Hey, the Messiah that we've been waiting on, the Messiah that we've been looking for, his name is Jesus. The Jewish leadership in the city are not fans of, of Paul's new faith. They come after him. We read in Acts 9 that his friends helped him escape. They lowered him over the wall of the city in a basket. Did that really happen? Yes. How do we know? Archaeologists found the wall. This part of the city was built and rebuilt, but underneath a Catholic chapel, they've actually found the wall that Paul would have been lowered over. Fast forward to Acts 13. Just kind of follow along with Paul here. Acts 13, Paul's on his first missions journey. We read in verse 6, when they'd gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Okay, was this intelligent man a real man? Skeptics wondered, doubted, some even scoffed for, for years, because there was no evidence that anyone named Sergius Paulus ever existed. And many raised the question, if he did exist, would his title have been proconsul? Because Rome used different titles for different people doing different things at different times. Oh, I'm not sure that, that proconsul would have been the title for this person, if he even existed, which I doubt that he did. Except that he did. In 1877, archaeologists found an, an inscription near Paphos with the name Sergius Paulus and the title, Proconsul. Paul's second missionary journey, Acts 17. Paul makes his way to Athens. And we remember that Paul was dismayed when he got there because the city was given over to idol worship. And he refers to the widespread idolatry in his famous Mars Hill sermon. He, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And we remember the sermon, how Paul uses that as a launching pad and says, hey, you worship a God that you don't know. Can I tell you about him? Because out of all of your, your gods and goddesses and deities, there's one whose name that you don't know. 
but he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the fact that Athens was given over to idolatry is well established. The Roman historian, uh, historian Pliny says at the time of Nero, his estimate was that there were more than 30,000 statues and altars and places of idol worship throughout the city of Athens. 30,000 public places besides household shrines and, and other private places. But an altar to an unknown god, that seems a little weird. Was that maybe Paul just speaking evangelistically? Was he stretching things to make a good story? No. And we know that he wasn't because in 1909, archaeologists found an altar to the unknown god. They didn't find it in Athens. They found it in Pergamum. But Athens and Pergamum were both Roman colonies at the same time. Similar in culture, proving that this worship of an unknown god was a thing. Following chapter, Acts 18, we find that Paul's in Corinth for an extended period of time, 18 months or longer. During that time, verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Any evidence that that actually happened? Turns out Gallio is a well-known figure in history, mostly because his brother was Seneca, who was famous. He was a famous Roman author. But was his brother ever proconsul of a backwater place like Achaia? And again, the question of title, would that have been the right title for someone who was the Roman authority in Achaia at that time? Archaeologists found an inscription they believe that was originally attached to the wall of a temple to Apollo in the city of Delphi, which was a copy of a letter from Claudius, Emperor Claudius, to the city of Delphi, referring to Gallio as a friend of Claudius and the proconsul of Achaia. A real person with that real title. Acts 19. We find Paul in Ephesus. And Paul ends up in the middle of a riot. You ever, you ever wonder, with the number of riots that Paul gets caught up in, is, is he just thinking, here we go again? <laughs> but this one was, was, was started because a silversmith named Demetrius calls together all of the other craftsmen who are selling souvenirs to people visiting the Temple of Diana. And, and he's pointing out, hey, Paul, and by extension, all of Christianity, is threatening our livelihood they're threatening us, and, and just to underscore the gravity of the situation, they're threatening the temple of Diana. So the whole city riots, and at the end of the chapter, next slide, the end of the chapter, the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater, the whole city rushed into the theater with one accord. That seems unlikely. What kind of a, a theater was this? By now, you're not surprised. First of all, the Temple of Diana exists, or existed. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That was on Earth in 18, uh, 1869. And it's huge. It's four, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. But the same archaeologists that uncovered the temple later excavated an adjacent theater, an amphitheater, with seating for 24,000 people. So yeah, they all rushed into the theater. 
There was room for more. And not surprisingly, Demetrius is, is selling you know, trinkets and trash to souvenirs. Small statues, both of Diana and the temple, dating to the first century. Souvenir statues, just like we read about in Acts 19, turn up regularly in digs throughout the region. Acts 21, we're getting closer to stuff that we've talked about recently. Acts 21, Paul returns to Jerusalem, and we remember that he was thinking it was going to be a whistle stop. Quick turnaround, he just was, was, was going to hang out for a little while and then head to Rome. And they said, well, just hang out long enough to make an offering at the temple and let people know that you're, you're really still Jewish. And Paul says, okay, I can do that. But as he's there going through the purification rituals, he's accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple. The city immediately riots, another riot, people looking to kill Paul. Well, that seems extreme. Would that really have been the reaction? Is this just an over-dramatization? No, because every entry point to the temple had a notice posted in Greek and Latin, only Jews are permitted to enter, Gentiles are forbidden. How do we know? Well, we read about it in some of the Jewish literature. Yeah, but how do we know it's really true? Because archaeologists have found two of those signs, one in 1871, one in 1935. Written in Greek, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And that's the line they thought that Paul crossed with Gentile friends. From Jerusalem, Paul's taken to Caesarea, and this is Acts 23, 24, 25, 26. Caesarea is beautiful. The ruins, even in its ruined state, you can, you can see how glorious it was. The excavation began in the 1950s. But the most interesting thing discovered at Caesarea doesn't have to do with Herod's castle or the harbor, but a Roman inscription that was found in 1861, dating to the first century, with the name Pontius Pilate. Which brings us to Acts 27 and 28, which is where we left off. But even here, archaeologists have something to add to what we've already studied. There are abundant examples of shipwrecks in the Mediterranean recovered, dug out of the mud. Studying them, they, they know exactly what kind of ship Paul was on. He was on a grain ship making the run from Alexandria to Rome. And if you notice, it had no rudder, it had no keel, it had no ability to steer, it had only one main mast and main sail. What does that mean? It means it couldn't sail into the wind, it means that it was extremely vulnerable to storms, and a good windy storm would leave the ship unable to navigate. Doesn't that sound like exactly what Luke describes in Acts 27? The point being, archaeology tells us when we're reading the book of Acts, we're reading history as it really happened. Now someone is going to say, okay, Patrick, but that's the book of Acts. And yeah, sure, maybe Paul traveled everywhere that he said and talked to everybody that he said. But Christianity doesn't revolve around Paul, it revolves around Jesus. Can archaeology substantiate anything that we read in the Gospels? The answer is yes. 
And, 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 and praise God the answer is yes, because for a long time, critics of the Bible attacked the Gospels on the basis of an absence of archaeological evidence. There's no historical basis for this place and this event because we can't find any evidence that anything happened there. Not surprisingly, the more we dig, the more we find. Go back to the beginning of Jesus' public life. He was raised in Nazareth, but he... he in his early ministry, relocated from Nazareth up to Capernaum. And and we read in Mark 1, that's where he called his first disciples. We read in Matthew 8, he healed many people. We read in Luke 4, he taught often in the synagogue there. The problem is for centuries, people would go to Capernaum and not find anything. There was no city there. It was uninhabited. It was deserted. It It was grown over. There was no evidence that there had any event, ever been a town there. But in 1866, British researchers located it. And over the last 150 years, they've uncovered all kinds of ruins, including the synagogue Jesus taught in. Here you see two different layers, a lighter layer and a darker layer. These are the ruins of a 4th century synagogue built on top of an earlier synagogue. I think we've got another picture, and they actually have it labeled there. This white synagogue dates to the 4th century. This is the synagogue, or the ruins of the synagogue that Jesus taught in. And that happens a lot with New Testament place references. John 5 talks about the pool in Bethsaida, and the healing waters that were allegedly there. This is where Jesus said to the man, take up your bed and walk. For a long time, this was a favorite story of Bible critics, because John gives a very specific description of what it's supposed to look like uh, with, with, with five porches, and, and, a, and there would be a corresponding number of columns you'd expect to find with that. But Jerusalem was excavated left to right and up and down, and no place matching the description was ever found. Well, I guess it doesn't exist. I guess John made it up. I wonder what else he made up. Until 1888, the pool was discovered. And over the next 80 years, the porches and the columns were uncovered exactly the way that John describes. Similar story unfolded more recently, the pool of Siloam. This is the one where Jesus told the blind man to to wash his eyes in John chapter 9. Same challenge as the pool of Bethsaida. No one knew where it was. Hey, if you can't tell me where it was, I'm just going to assume that it doesn't exist. You made the whole thing up, and I wonder what else you made up. And that... That worked until 2004, when workers who were doing sewer repair, modern sewer, (laughs) digging around it to repair it, stumble into a space that turned out to be the Pool of Siloam. Did it really date to the time of Jesus? Yes, because they found coins dating to the first century before Jesus embedded in the rock. Now, hearing those stories, you might think, okay, well, then all of the places in the gospel were lost until they're found. No, a lot of places that we read about in the gospels have been known and, and, and you know, well-recognized continually since the days of Jesus or even before. John chapter 4, Jim, uh, Jesus meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. But we read in John 4, it's not just any well, it's Jacob's well. And this dates back to the Old Testament. Does that well really exist? Yeah. In Jesus' day, it was known as Jacob's Well, and it's been known as Jacob's Well continually since then. Today, there's a Greek Orthodox church built on the site. You can go there, you can visit it, and we can be confident that it is the site because it's the only well in the area, and wells don't move. 
Also from the well, you can see uh, Mount Gerizim. If you remember later in John 4, the Samaritan woman and Jesus talk about the, the place of worship that the, the Samaritans had. Well, that was on Mount Gerizim, and you can see the ruins there within sight of that Greek church, Jacob's well. Again and again, archaeology confirming the biblical account. In some cases, archaeology actually resolves apparent contradictions in Scripture. Luke's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, for example, both talk about Jesus healing a blind man near Jericho. Mark tells us that his name was Bartimaeus. Problem, Luke says that Jesus healed him as he was approaching Jericho. Mark says, no, he healed him on his way out of Jericho. Well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. That's not the Word of God. Because if it was the Word of God, it wouldn't have contradictions. The thing is, archaeologists remind us there were two cities of Jericho in Jesus' day. There was the original city here with Old Testament next to it that we read about, the, 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 the city that was destroyed by Joshua's army in Joshua 6, but then later rebuilt. But there was also a new city of Jericho built a mile or two away by the Romans, and that city housed Herod's palace. So reasonable explanation is that this healing happened somewhere in between. Speaking of Herod, we'll just hit a couple more quickly. Herod the Great, who ruled over Judea when Jesus was born, in 2007, while excavating the palace, because they've always known where the palace was, they discovered the tomb where Herod himself was buried. If we go to the next slide, there we have the, the ossuary, the, the, the box where his bones would have been interred. We, in, in, in 1990, construction workers found another ossuary. They accidentally stumbled across the ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest who officiated at Jesus' first trial. They found in, in catacombs a bunch of ossuaries, including, next slide, one with inscriptions that tell us whose bones were there. And on the subject of bones... Another attack that critics for years, for centuries, would make against the gospel was the idea that Jesus was crucified. Because first century Israel, crucifixion didn't happen. And the, if it happened at all, it certainly didn't happen with nails. And the Bible says that Jesus was nailed to the cross. If it happened at all, he was tied to the cross. But the Bible says he was nailed to the cross. So you can't trust anything that book says. And people could make that argument because there wasn't any archaeological evidence to the contrary. Until there was. In the 1980s, a construction crew unearthed a Jewish cemetery and found ossuaries, boxes of bones of men killed during the revolt against the Roman Empire in 70 AD. And at least one of those men had been crucified. How could they tell? Because of the iron nail driven through his heel bone. Next slide shows us what that would have been like, the nail going through the heel bone. Why don't we have more examples of that? Because iron was valuable in Jesus' day, and soldiers would have typically broken the bones apart to recover the iron before the bodies were disposed of. 
So that, that, was, that was someone who was killed, who was crucified during the Jewish revolt in 70 AD. We can't talk about that without talking about Jesus' prophecy that when, when Jerusalem was judged for rejecting her Messiah, that not one stone would be left upon another. Did that happen? Well, yeah, it happened. Are you sure it happened? For a while, people had to take it on faith, but from 1993 to 1997, excavations uncovered huge blocks Blocks of the temple thrown off the temple mount when? When the Roman soldiers took apart the temple because the, they, they, it got set on fire, the flames burned so hot it melted the silver, the gold. They took apart the temple trying to recover the precious metal and when they were done with the block, they threw it over the side. Okay, Patrick, you're skipping over the big question. Have archaeologists found anything at all related directly to the person of Jesus? I mean, I know a lot has been written about him, and Josephus and other historians talked about him. But do we have archaeological evidence? Do we have any artifacts that tell us Jesus existed? We do. In 2005, Israeli archaeologists announced that they had recovered the, the, located the remains of one of the oldest Christian churches ever found, dating to the early 3rd century. And one feature of this church was a 17-foot by 32-foot mosaic with the inscription that this church was built in honor of the God, Jesus Christ. Not only did they believe in Jesus, but contrary to what a lot of skeptics and cynics and university professors want to tell you, they worshipped him as God. It's fun, right? And things get even more fun when you turn to the Old Testament because the things in the Old Testament happened longer ago, which means that they were buried deeper and forgotten more thoroughly. In many cases, Old Testament accounts regarded as, as utterly fictional until archaeology proves otherwise. And I don't have time to go there this morning, but, but you want to... Okay, I was going to say dig into this. Um, but, 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 but do some research on your own. It's not hard. I'll post some links on the church Facebook page and, and send it out through, through my, my email. But, but read for yourself how historians laughed at the idea that there was a people group called the Hittites until 1834 when the first ruins were discovered. Now we, we have a Hittite dictionary. The idea that ch children were sacrificed to Moloch. No civilization could have been that barbaric until the 20th century when altars and, and remains of, of infants were unearthed side by side. David. David was widely regarded as a fictional character. But in 1993, a 3,000-year-old inscription bearing the name King David was unearthed in Israel. And, and, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. But in the time that we have left, I want to highlight just, just one recent discovery that appears to validate one of the oldest accounts in Scripture, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know the story, most of us. Genesis 18 and 19, cities guilty of exceeding wickedness, destroyed by God, brings fire down from the sky. The whole region is uninhabitable, and at least one person is turned into salt. Did it really happen? And if it did, how could we possibly know? Stephen Collins, who has a connection to Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, spent a decade investigating this. 
And he started by trying to figure out exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. And, 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 and like Bob Cornuck did with, with Paul and his shipwreck, there was a lot of speculation, no real proof, but Collins looked at Scripture and he said, you know what, there are 25 distinct geographical clues. And if you follow them, they lead to a place called Tal El-Haman, which is over here in modern-day Jordan, north of the Dead Sea. I actually sent out an article about this last year. Some of you have read Eric Metaxas's book. He devotes a chapter to this. Archaeologists have known, and they've, they've dug around Tal Alamon for years. And one of the things that's puzzled them for years is the cities, they disagree, were there two, were there three, were very advanced. They had multi-story buildings, five-story buildings, bigger city than Jericho or Jerusalem, and it just disappeared. People stopped living there 3,600 years ago. And, and, as, and as they dig and as they excavate, there's no sign of war, no sign of conflict, no sign of conquest, no sign of disease or pestilence. What they do find evidence of is an extreme thermal event. They find signs of extreme heat on skeletal remains and on pottery fragments both. They're covered in trinitite, which I don't know from Trinitite, but I'm told it's the glassy layer that you find in places like Los Alamos or Bikini Island, where you test atomic weapons, where sand and minerals are superheated to 4,000 degrees or more in a second, and they melt. That's all over there. What's also interesting is they unearth human remains they find lots of skeletons that are intact, that are perfectly complete, except that they're sheared off at about chest high, which is consistent with a heat blast along the lines of Hiroshima or along the lines of what happened when the asteroid, what we think was an asteroid, exploded over Siberia in 1908. And here you see, if, if you transpose that 1908 event on that geography, you see the extent to which it would have affected the region. What makes the story almost surreal, though, and, and you, can, you can get into it on your own because I'm just skimming the highlights, is that following the blast, the whole area was supersaturated with salt, so much so that nothing could grow. And the speculation was that it happened so close to the Dead Sea when, when something explodes in the air, it creates a vacuum that pulls everything up and then it drops it back down. Did it pull up sediment and water from the Dead Sea, which is 10 times saltier than most seas, and just spill salt all over the region? You take it all together, it sounds like a pretty good 21st century description of what we read in Genesis. God raining down fire, destroying cities, leaving the area uninhabitable for generations, and leaving at least one person encased in a superheated column of salt. Patrick, this is interesting and everything. Why are we doing this on a Sunday morning? <laughs> because from time to time, we all need a reminder. And archaeology gives us a reminder. We can trust this book. In the last month, I've talked to three different people from three different churches. Every one of them a leader in their respective church. All wrestling with the same question that we all wrestle with from time to time, if we're honest. What if, what if this is just a collection of stories? What if Jesus was just a wandering Jew? What if I'm only believing this because I want to, because I need to believe in something and I picked this? 
It's okay to have those questions. I have those questions from time to time. Every single pastor I know has those questions from time to time. And there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with having doubt. In fact, it's good. If we let doubt, if we let uncertainty, if we allow our questions to drive us into the Word of God to investigate its truth claims, to determine, is there a basis for believing this? And if we do, the Bible will defend itself. The Bible will prove it is the Word of God. And we can get there a lot of different ways. This morning we got there through archaeology. Could have just as easily gotten there through history. If we use the same methods, the same tests and standards that historians use to determine the veracity of any historical event, the Bible stands up. We could do the same thing scientifically. We could have reminded ourselves, not only does the Bible not contain a single scientific error, but it consistently reflects a knowledge of science far, far in advance of what the cultures in which the Bible, the books of the Bible were written had any, any clue about. Talking about the different books of the Bible, we could remind ourselves of the Bible's internal consistency. 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents in three languages over 2,000 years or more. Not a single contradiction among them. That doesn't happen by chance. We, we could go to my, my favorite, prophecy. The Bible writes history in advance with, with amazing specificity. Decades, centuries before things happen, the Bible describes them always with perfect accuracy. My point is the questions about our faith are good if we let them drive us back to the Word. Because if we do, then we will be reminded we're not making something up out of nothing. We're not seeing what we want to see. We're seeing what God gave us to see. We're seeing evidence. The author of Hebrews says our faith is evidence of things not seen. We have a reasoned faith and a reasonable faith and an evidentiary faith. All of which tells us we can trust this book which means we can trust the author of the book. We can trust the things that he says. We can trust him when he tells us that we can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can believe him when he tells us that this life is like a grain of sand and eternity is, is wider and deeper and greater than all of the sand on all of the beaches throughout all of the world. We can trust him when he tells us that the sadness and the suffering of this life can't compare to the joy that's waiting for us in the next life. We can believe the book, and we can believe the author, and we can believe his promises. We can trust him when he tells us that Jesus rose from the dead for, for us. We can trust him when he tells us that the power that raised Jesus from the, death, from, from the, the, the dead lives in us allowing us to live for him, empowering us to overcome sin, preparing us to love our enemies, equipping us to be his witnesses. We can believe him. Doubts, doubts are natural. The problem is Satan wants to take them and use them for his purposes. Satan wants to use our doubts to sideline us. 
Because if I'm not sure that Jesus is real, if the Bible is true, that God's promises are sure, if, I'm not, if, I, if I don't know what I think about all of that, well, then I'm not sure that I can resist temptation, so I won't. <laughs> then I'm not sure that I can have mercy, and I won't. I don't think that I have it in me to love my neighbor, and I'm not going to. Forgive the person who hurt me? Why should I? If I'm not convinced that Jesus forgave me while I was his enemy. If I'm not sure that this book is true, then I'm not sure I can stand on the faith that it describes. And Satan laughs. Because saved or not saved, he's taken me out of the game. And I won't be doing anything in this life that's useful for the kingdom. Our doubts are natural. But we need to do something about them. We need, more to the point, we need to let Jesus do something about them. We need to let Jesus use our doubts to drive us back to the Word, where we'll be reminded of who He is and who we are. This book tells us we're people who have overcome death and we get to overcome sin. People who have been forgiven, who get to forgive. People who are beloved by God, who get to love. People that Jesus died for, who get to live for him. Father, would you war with our doubts? I don't think that you sow doubt, but you use doubt. You use it to reaffirm our faith. Because when we ask questions, You're faithful to supply answers. Your word supplies answers. You have designed your word to be self-validating. The deeper we dig into it, the more we're amazed by it. And the more we're amazed by it, the more that we're reminded that we're really amazed by you, the author of it, who's also the author and the finisher of our faith. Deepen our faith, Lord. That as we stand for you, we stand on solid ground. As we occupy until we come, until you come. We stand shoulder to shoulder with believers of this generation. We stand with believers of every generation. So great a cloud of witnesses declaring who you are. Believing in your love.